we talk a lot on this podcast about the ascendant woke ideology, but there is not yet anything like consensus on what this political movement actually is, what values define it, and indeed, who advances its agenda. Well, my guest on the podcast today has tackled these questions in a new book. She argues that woke ideology is an elite phenomenon, that it has breathed new life into old prejudices like sexism, racism, and homophobia, and that elites are unaware how unpopular these ideas are with the public. I think one of the defining features of the new cultural elite that we have today, and again, I think something that really marks it out from previous eras, is how isolated they are, how geographically, politically, socially, you know, they they mix with people who are like-minded. They spend their days just with people who think exactly like them. Joanna Williams is founder of the Keogh Independent Think Tank and a columnist at Spiked. She's also the author of How Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance, and reason. Joanna Williams is my guest today on Lean Out. Joanna, welcome to Lean Out. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you on. I found this book so engaging, so I'm excited to speak with you today. Let's start by defining terms here. Uh, You write in the book that wokeism is not yet a coherent ideology, but let's talk about its defining values. What exactly is woke? Mm -hmm. No, it's a very good question. And it's it's also a very big question for such a little word. Um, I mean, clearly the term's become a bit of a political football over the past few years, and it's changed a lot since its origins in a black street culture, really, as a, a kind of warning to black people to beware of real and present dangers, either from the state or from people who were genuinely going to be threatening their lives. But it's clearly morphed a long way. And and what it seems to me now, it seems to me, is is partly an insult. I mean, let's be honest about it, an insult to a group in society who are, let's perhaps one way to put it, is just extremely politically correct, um, have very strong views on, particularly around identity politics, issues to do with race and gender that are kind of notionally egalitarian and and progressive, but I would argue actually take a very authoritarian and very regressive form that are are very concerned with labelling people according to identity groups, putting people in boxes and kind of dictating how we should think and how we should relate to people according to those kind of hierarchies that, that become constructed. And why does it why does this movement resist classification so strenuously? I mean, why can we not people get very upset when the word woke is used? It is considered a sort of right wing term. Why is this movement so resistant to being called any one thing? No, again, another interesting thing. I'm, I'm really, I'm fascinated by the politics behind this. But, but in the process of writing the book, I really did become very interested in the word itself and and how the word has changed its usage over over time. And 
some people who are, are woke actually don't disown the term. And a number of people are kind of proudly, I was going to say reclaiming it, but I don't think even it would be fair to say reclaiming it, are kind of claiming the term and um, do turn around and say, well, it just means to say that you're a nice person, really, that you're kind, that you believe in equal rights. So anyone who's not woke and not proudly woke, you know, should should kind of disappear. <laughs> I think that's a bit disingenuous. I think when you look at what's actually meant by work, it's it's about far more than just being nice and being kind or or even being egalitarian. It's about being nice and kind in a particular way and, and having views that are, are really consistent with one particular outlook. But I think that people who are woke and who we might describe as having woke politics but deny the label, I think it's very much in their best interest to do that because I think I think in some ways it's genuine, you know, that there, there isn't a political party that kind of calls itself the woke party, for example. And, and in some ways it looks like just a, a disparate range of interests. You know, some people are interested in gender, some people are interested in issues around race and just different issues. And it's not until you start connecting the dots, really, and you see that if people take one particular view in relation to gender, then they're quite likely to also maintain particular beliefs about identity more broadly. But I think I think it's kind of not really in many people's interest to present this as a coherent view. It, it certainly makes opposing it easier if it's seen as a coherent outlook. Mm-hmm. And you sort of trace some of the seeds of this movement quite far back, even to the Frankfurt School. But the ascendancy of it is really, as you say, sort of the last five years, you know, since Brexit, since Trump, since 2015, 2016. Why was that such a turning point for this? Yeah, I think it I think it really, really was because I think, well, let me give you an example. So back in 2016, um, I was working at a university in the UK, and that was when the Brexit vote was announced. And a couple of things that really struck me at that point in time was how upset people were. You know, <laughs> clearly there was, and it was very acceptable to be upset in public. I'm talking about people actually sitting in cafes and university cafes and bars, literally crying, crying in public public about this and and you got these very upfront and explicit displays of emotion and it was kind of a safe environment for people to be able to do that because there was clearly a sense of of kind of groupthink if you like of, of people knew they could do that safely because it was the majority view so many other people shared that consensus and it seemed like that was the initial reaction was almost to grieve But very soon it solidified into a sense of, well, we must work harder. We must pull all the levers at our disposal to Mm. emphasize things like global citizenship. It's almost as if you could ride roughshod over the democratic vote. People became quite aware, I think, of their own power. People not just in universities, but in other institutions. And for the first time, were confronted against a, a democratic vote, which came as a shock. They didn't like, but then they realized they could actually do something about that. They almost didn't have to put up with democracy, that they had powers which 
superseded democracy. So I guess for academics, that would be a captive audience of thousands of young students that they would come into contact with every year. And that if they wanted to promote values such as global citizenship and challenge what they saw as being some of the views that drove the vote for Brexit, they were able to do that from their institutional position. And I think that view kind of transcended academia and there were a number of other, I mean, schools, for example, I think teachers became aware that that they had a power as well to be able to promote certain ideas around, particularly again, around race and gender and identity that I guess in the US, the vote for Trump would have been the key driver at that time. So if you didn't like Trump and you didn't like what you saw, again, I'm kind of choosing my words quite carefully here because I'm not sure it's it's accurate. I don't think it's accurate, but their perception of what drove Brexit, what drove the vote for Trump, that, that you didn't actually need to worry about democracy, that you could change these things from your own position in a school or in a university or even in the media, in the health mm. center or in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it certainly uh, sounds very familiar to me coming from the media. Uh, I want to talk from, I mean, what, what what this really kind of segues into is the, these are elite politics, as, as you point out in the book. And that you are arguing here that we're, what we're witnessing is, you know, the turning of the tide from, from the old establishment to this new elite. Who Who is this elite? Who, who are they? Us. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, you know, a really, really good question. And again, something which is perhaps quite difficult to pin down. Um, I mean, I would say they're definitely graduates. There's a, a kind of professional graduate class who are quite seduced by their own supposed expertise and and have a real sense of themselves as as being highly educated and perhaps better educated than the general population. And perhaps even if that's not true, in some ways, the the paper qualifications give them this sense of identity and, and status and expertise. So I think in that sense, they're quite new and it, it's quite new because it's a much more substantial in the UK, a more substantial chunk of the population than would have been in, in previous areas. You know, there are also people whose jobs, how can I put this, you know, are perhaps not, uh, well, give them opportunities to tweet and engage with social media throughout the day, perhaps, or, you know, but more one term that's been used is the, the laptop class. You know, mm. people who have some kind of flexibility, soft power through their work and, and a nice lifestyle, let's say, that goes with it, but also a security that comes from having their wage uh, often quite literally paid for by the taxpayer or, you know, are in a privileged position in a in a, an institution, often got very strong links to what would in the past have been known as HR departments, human resources or personnel, go back even further, personnel departments, where those departments used to be just concerned with kind of writing paychecks and making sure, you know, maternity leave or sickness pay was covered. And are now have now really pushed into equality, diversity, and inclusion, and and that agenda gives them much more power. Mm-hmm. And you, so yeah, exactly on power. I mean, you you're arguing here the balance of power in society has shifted away from elected officials to state institutions and these third sector organizations, which basically circumvents the need to win public support. I want to read a quote from the book. Woke allows members of the cultural elite to carve out a role for themselves in managing the alleged divisions between oppressors and oppressed. 
And you go on to say woke ideas and identity politics justify a system of mass bureaucracy. So when it comes to this project that you're outlining, you, you've mentioned a few kind of manifestations of this in the universities and, and, and in schools. What are the other tools at the cultural elite's disposal? I mean, I think one of the most interesting examples is perhaps through the world of business, because I think for a lot of people, and I mean, I confess even for myself, it seems like that is initially kind of quite antithetical to work politics. You think, well, business is all about making money. And, you know, why would people who make money be remotely interested in promoting a woke outlook? But it kind of seems as if these things are not antithetical at all when you start to drill down more deeply. It seems as if there's quite a happy coincidence between being able to promote woke values and businesses to to carry on and either increase profitability or maintain levels of profitability. So you you see how this really infiltrates into all areas of of our kind of political and cultural life and and business life as well. I guess publishing is a very, very good example of this. It's it's one of the things I've been thinking about most, um, particularly since the attack on Salman Rushdie. Mm. And you look at how a, a book like The Satanic Verses, for example, I mean, my my guess is that that book would just not even be published today at all. There are so many obstacles it would have to go through that someone Rushdie would have to go through first, you know, to secure an agent, to secure a publisher, to bypass a sensitivity reader, to have the book marketed, sold on Amazon or in bookshops. And you just think at every single step of that journey, people would have said no and reacted against it. So I think that kind of level of control over what the rest of the public has access to really does assert a lot a lot of power over public discourse. It's strange. I mean, the business perspective, the, the woke books, I mean, some of them sell very well, but in general, anything woke put to a popular vote, as you point out in the book, doesn't do very well. P- people don't tend to like it. So why are businesses who are focused on capitalism taking those risks to promote an ideology that is not that popular in the general public? Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I think two two reasons that I can think of is one, perhaps I think they don't, maybe I'm being a bit naive here, but it certainly seems to me that they don't realize how unpopular it is. And I think one of the defining features of the new cultural elite that we have today, and again, I think something that really marks it out from previous eras, is how how isolated they are, how geographically, politically, socially, you know, they they mix with people who are like-minded. Um, they spend their days just with people who think exactly like them. Like to go back to what I was saying about Brexit in universities, you know, when I was talking about people crying, part of that response, I think, was just because it was such a shock. And mm. people felt no shame to say, but how can this be? You know, I don't know anyone who voted Brexit. And you think, well, to me, that would be, I would be embarrassed if I was to say, I don't know anyone who voted Remain, because to me, that would be an admission that I lived in a bubble, that I didn't really have many friends who weren't of the same worldview as me. Whereas it seemed that academics not only felt no shame in saying that, but saw it as a badge of pride. You know, I'm 
so kind of right on or politically correct, if you like, that I don't even mix with any of these people who have these views. And I think some of that's the same for business. I think if you're at the top of an organization and your worldview is formed by people who spend their days on Twitter, you only mix with people who are like you, you actually don't realize how unpopular these views are. I think that's one reason. I think the other reason why this has taken off in business is because the bottom line of business, I, I think, is to make money. But that's people feel very uncomfortable about saying that nowadays, you know, to actually just say, Do you know, what, I want to make lots of money. And I think it will make my life better. And I think it will make the world a better place. If we create lots of wealth, then we can employ more people, people can have a better standard of living. But whether that's because of the environmental agenda, or just a, a degree of self-consciousness or just changing fashions you know it seems like for many years now business people have felt uncomfortable about the very mission um capitalists let's be blunt capitalists have felt uncomfortable about the number one driving force of capitalism and so but they still do it you know they are still making money and often it's the most woke businesses that are actually engaged in some quite dodgy practices mm. at the same time as being woke, but but they just can't come out and say, you know, we really want to make money. So, so all these kind of woke things become, like I said, not, I don't think it's a pretense. I don't think it's just a smokescreen. I think they do genuinely believe it. But what lies beneath that is a, a kind of loss of faith in actually actual capitalism. Mm. Which is another interesting point. So uh, you point out in the book that woke activists, um, let's talk about social class now, uh, woke activists do not agitate to improve the material conditions of people's lives, which with income inequality being what it is, are getting quite dire. Um, and instead, what they're agitating for is better representation of different identity groups. And, you know, so despite growing out of leftist politics and presenting itself as leftist politics, woke ideologies often hostile to the working class, which, as you put it in the book, are viewed as politically backward kind of spent force. So many conservatives, though, claim that wokeism is actually Marxism. But you but you disagree. Yeah, I really, really disagree. And, and for all the reasons, really, that you've just said that, that to me, Marxism, um, well, number one feature of Marxism is about having a class awareness. And it's about wanting to upturn really class relations as they would exist under capitalism. It's wanting to give more power to the proletariat, Marxists would say, or to working class people and to level up that playing field. And it seems to me that that's the last thing that, that woke people want to do. And I think one of the reasons why they steer away from talking about class is because it, well, it would threaten their own position. I mean, as I describe in the book, lots of people who are most woke are, are really kind of quite elite people, often had very middle class privileged backgrounds. It would raise questions about their own authority, if you like, to, to rule this, especially as they I uh, like to bang on so much about the importance of lived experience. You know, if your lived experience is a very privileged, materially privileged experience, you're not in a position then to advocate on behalf of the working class. But I think far more than that, because of the way woke really feeds off and, and taps into identity politics, they 
and and I guess this is what really disturbs me most. I think it's not just an ignoring of the working class, but natural disdain or contempt for the working class. So again, if we take these examples of Trump and Brexit, there are real correlations between social class and the likelihood that you voted for Brexit in the UK or voted for Trump in the US. I think the woke cultural elites just can't cope with that. You know, they think working class people, the bottom line is they think working class people are stupid and that disdain and that contempt comes out really quite explicitly when you look at um, discussions around democracy. You know, we've even had people saying that there should be almost intelligence tests put on kind of permission to vote. And what that's saying is that we want the working class, we want to disenfranchise the working class, and we would much prefer the only people who get a say are people who think like us, you know, might look different. You know, you might be able to assemble a kind of proper rainbow of of different skin colors, different gender identities, you know, every different kind of identity box you might be able to tick. But essentially, they want people who think like them and and don't think like the working class. Yeah, it's 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 really quite wild. Um, I do want to spend a moment on education. I know you have an extensive background in education. And so I I want to read another quote from the book. When educationalists come to understand the role of schools, not as conserving or transmitting the knowledge of the past, but as preparing children both intellectually and morally for life in a rapidly changing world, then there is no longer collective agreement about what children need to know. And so you're arguing this edges out subject matter, creates a vacuum that woke values fill, and that this current education system is really a form of moral engineering, and that putting every social problem on the curriculum allows activists to bypass the democratic process, to bypass difficult arguments with adults, go straight to the easier task of convincing children. You do also take pains to say this is not a conspiracy. So so what is it? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would draw a very similar parallel to what I was just talking about in relation to uh, biz- the business world. And it, it stems, it seems, from a real lack of, of faith in what the project of education should be about. So just as, as business people, business elites are have kind of lost faith in capitalism, has, have, have find themselves unable to say, we just want to make lots of money. I think far too many teachers and not not even really individual teachers, but the kind of educational establishment, you know, the people who are setting the curriculum, people who are leading schools and education boards, you know, they, they've lost faith in what education should be for. Um, and to me, that is, is very much tied in with a cultural project of passing on knowledge, a kind of Matthew Arnold sense of the best that has been thought and said, you know, what, what is the, the kind of pinnacle of knowledge that we've achieved in in our culture and by our culture I I really mean kind of I think that's a very important thing to kind of surpass boundaries of of race and gender and and actually look at at what's universal in the human experience you know why does somebody a playwright like Shakespeare for example have the capacity to be able to speak to people across hundreds of years across languages even across gender across racial boundaries you know what is it about that kind of work that that still speaks to us 
they can't do that. You know, this is something that's really depressing. There's a, a vacuum at the heart of our culture, a philistinism, if you like, where we've lost the capacity to celebrate beauty, to celebrate art, to appreciate knowledge. And, and it's almost as if that's happened first, that's been jettisoned. And so then, you know, there've been various things that have filled that vacuum over a long period of time. I mean, skills becomes the most obvious one, you know, but there's a real difference between teaching literature and teaching basic literacy skills. You know, you would hope children would all have basic literacy skills, but but that's for a purpose and it's to be able to appreciate great works of literature. But when you don't have that end goal, you know, you're just teaching basic skills to people with the assumption that anything they want to know, they'll just Google. So what's the point? Mm. You know, you you suddenly you have all these hours of the school day to fill with no overarching sense of why this is important or what you're doing there. So then it becomes not not only easy to kind of cherry pick different political issues, but but it becomes necessary because otherwise you just have a vacuum. Otherwise, you just admit you're not there for anything. Mm. Yeah, it's you you also write it, you know, about this rejection of history and tradition and nationality in like a range of fields. And I I wanted just to spend a moment on the queen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I'm still working out my thoughts on this. So bear with me for a moment. But we we are Britain is in this moment of mourning, right? Right now. And we're seeing a lot of the same tensions that you write about in the book playing out in the response to the death of the queen. I, I personally, my, my grandmother was a factory worker in London. She survived the blitz. She adored the queen. So I grew up loving the queen. And I also have relatives in Dublin who have a very different experience of the crown and friends who grew up in Trinidad who have another experience of the crown. And I'm, I, I don't know how we reconcile. I mean, how do we how do we go about sort of looking at the old system and you know avoid avoid going to the opposite extreme uncritically defending institutions that deserve criticism but also not throwing out all of heritage and tradition either I hope that was articulated. Yeah, okay. no, absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, everything that you've just articulated are thoughts that have been going through my head over the past few days. And it really is a very interesting time to, to grapple with because I hope, you know, I guess I the one thing I really hope comes out of my book is that I'm a Democrat. I think, you know, if I had to describe myself politically, I would hope the word Democrat would be there, you know, up at the top. And Clearly, a monarchy is not democratic. And, you know, for all those reasons, you know, I've never been a royalist or, a, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Republican. I would far, I've always argued I'd far rather have a president, a bad president even, that I could have the power to vote out than a hereditary head of state who's just kind of foisted upon us. But <laughs> having said all that, you know, I think the end of, of our queen, you know, really, really is an end of an era in the UK. And I think a couple of things, I think in the character of her, you know, there's something to celebrate or now I should say really um, kind of commemorate, you know, with, with her passing. I think the very fact that she was around on the throne for 70 years and 
put service before self you know we can't really say we know any of her opinions we don't really know how she felt at any point in time I mean that's completely unimaginable if you suddenly if you were to do a kind of character study comparing the queen with Megan for example Mm. you'd look at absolute polar opposites you know I feel like I know everything that Megan thinks about everything. (laughs) And what's more, I know how she feels at any given point in time as well, because those kind of public displays of emotion are something that we've come to expect. I'm being a bit unfair picking on Megan, but, you know, with Prince Harry, all the younger royals as well, there's this kind of preoccupation with mental health, with we know what the causes are that are close to their heart and the the kind of they've they've talked quite openly about wanting to challenge the stiff upper lip culture Mm. whereas the queen really did represent that stiff upper lip culture you know there's a stoicism there's a duty but so that those are like her kind of personal qualities which I think were admirable and will miss but I think where the the kind of institution extends beyond that is about this sense of, of it very unique, I think, really, in having a capacity to transcend kind of social class, race, gender, all the kind of identitarian dividing points that we've been so used to in society. The Queen, whether it was her as a figure or the institution, and then we'll find that out, I think, over the next few months, really was able to transcend that, you know, she could unite the country across lines that no other person or institution really has the capacity to do. And again, I think with, with and, and also, sorry, just to add to that very quickly, I think the way she managed to do that was very much about the past and tradition. And it she could draw a line and she kind of embodied herself a line between Britain's past, as you were saying, with the Blitz and the war experience, right through to the present day. And I think her being in that position made it much more difficult for people to trash Britain's past. Interestingly, they've they've tried to do that even since her death, but it doesn't really stick. You know, she she was able to unite and to to kind of symbolise Britain's history, if you like, and embody Britain's history in the character of one person. Mm. It really is an end of an era. It it really is. Just to just to close now, though, the title the title of the book, How Woke Won, does argue woke has won and that this victory has unfortunately ended up breathing new life into old prejudices, including racism, including sexism, including homophobia. Where does this all go from here? Is the future woke? <laughs> well, I really, really hope not. Um, you know, and I guess what keeps me going is I think kind of having a um, the disinfectant of sunlight on a lot of these issues and, and exposing to them. I think woke elites would far rather operate behind closed doors than out in public. And I think the more we can make public decisions that are being made on what's happening, whether that's in schools or in the workplace, which obviously involves arguing for free speech as well. I think the more we can do those things, then, I mean, you pointed out right at the beginning when we started talking about how woke in the mass population is generally not very popular. It it wins when it becomes an elite project practice behind closed doors. So the more we can kind of open those doors and make it a public project, 
the more opportunity people have to scrutinize and, and push back and, and, and kind of challenge it. And I think that's, for me, where the importance of democracy really comes in, because when people do get a say and know what's going on, they're able to, to push back and, and challenge it. But but you're right, you know, I think I think it's it's a really regressive movement. I think it's it really plays off reinforcing, uh, rehabilitating our prejudices and in a really ugly, horrible way. And you know, that's why I, certainly I will fight it with every kind of ounce of my being to to challenge these you know I, I really struggle to see anything that that is at all progressive about us all kind of defining ourselves according to I mean for me you know the fact that I'm white the fact that I'm a woman the fact that I guess I'm now middle-aged you know those are the most boring irrelevant things about me you know I would hate to be defined by those things I would hate people to think that my outlook was defined by those things and I would extend that assumption to anybody else you know I think a society that's able to move beyond judging people according to their skin color their sexuality um, their sex you know I think that's got to be a much more progressive society and and that's certainly the world that I would like to see Mm. Well, it's such an interesting book. I hope everyone reads it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. No, an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.